0: Well, good morning. good morning. Welcome to Battleground Community Church. Whether you're watching online or are here with us in person, turn with, in your Bibles to Revelation chapter two. Uh, if you're new with us, if you're ha- watching online, or if you're here, you hadn't been with us. We we've entered in into an eight week sermon series, looking through the seven letters to the churches in Asia Minor, and and we are looked at Ephesus last week. We're in Smyrna this week, so we're going to be looking at verses 8 to 11. So as you find your place, I would just say a couple of things. If, if you weren't ready to give um, to Lottie Moon this week, it'll be open for, for the rest of the year, so you can just use one of the envelopes that's back there anytime between now and January and just put it in the offering plate and we'll, we will, we'll get it to them. Uh, as well as Mike mentioned um, the folks that are experiencing devastation. The Southern Baptists have what we call the North American Mission Board. Inside the North American Mission Board, there is a, a, a focal point that helps people in times of crisis called send relief. You can even Google that if you want to check that out. And uh, that is the arm of the of the Southern Baptists that will dispense both people and, and supplies to that area. So just... Uh, I think as I last looked, they had committed about $75,000 at this point to helping. And, uh, and we will talk about how to be a part of that as well. So just, just information to know that, that uh, as, a, as a denomination, we are always seeking to help. Uh, last week, Ephesus. This week, Smyrna. Uh, John Stott summarized the two messages this way. The first mark of a true and living church is love. The second is suffering. The, the first mark of a true and living church is love. The second mark is suffering. He goes on to say this, the one is the natural consequence of the other because the willingness to suffer proves the genuineness of love. It's a, good, it's a pretty good summary of what's going on in these churches that are that are connected together. So let's look at what was going on in the church of Smyrna. Let's stand to our feet as we read God's Word. Revelation 2, beginning in verse 8. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, the words of the first and the last, who died and came to life, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, and you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Let's pray. Lord, now as we come to this text, we are reminded most of what has happened this week and what is happening in the life of the church, that suffering is not new in this world, and it is certainly not new among the body of Christ. And so today, we are all in need of a comfort in some way. And so comfort us with your word, comfort us in truth. Your word is truth. Settle our busyness so that we may receive from you grace and blessings that come from your word that coming from know that you're our Father and you care for us in Jesus' name. Amen. So what was it like in Smyrna? Smyrna was about, if, if, if the map is up there, you can see, it's about 35 miles north of Ephesus. It was a natural next stop, so to speak. If you were going to run to, to these churches, you, you would go from Patmos to Ephesus to Smyrna. It was like Ephesus. It was like it in many ways. It was a prosperous seaport town. It was second in, in trade and exports to Ephesus. It was wealthy. It was prosperous. Because of that, it was the seat of emperor worship. Remember, we've been talking about that every week. That is one of the underlying pressures, one of the underlying tribulations that this church is going through. Matter of fact, they were such a seat that in 26 BC, they exclusively won the honor of building a temple to the emperor Tiberius. Smyrna is the only city only place that's still in existence. It's modern-day Izmir. It's still there. You can still go to what was Smyrna, now Izmir. They, it was also, if you remember Homer, the, the, the great ancient poet, it's, it was proclaimed, at least they claimed him, to be the birthplace of Homer. But yet in all of this prosperity, in all of this wonder, in all of these temples, and all of this trade, the church was suffering. They were poverty stricken. Why? How could could a group of people be in such poverty when the country was in such prosperity? (laughs) This brings in two things the sovereignty of our Lord and the suffering of His church. Look at verse 8. This is why not only we began in chapter 1 with the preeminence of Christ, he begins his letters focusing the church, no matter what they're going through, back on the preeminence of Christ. Verse 8. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. So they focus this poverty-stricken church back on Christ to start with. It's so the way he first he encourages them. Focus on me. This was an established church. We know some things about Smyrna from two guys. One was called Ignatius. The other was called Polycarp. They wrote letters. We still have many of those letters. And so we know that by the 2nd century, the church in Smyrna was an established church with pastors, and listen, with a plurality of elders and deacons in existence in the church in the 2nd century. Many of our churches should pay attention to that. But they were established that they were persecuted. And so, what he does to this established church is re-centers their focus back on the one who died but is alive. That's key to understanding not only what we'll get to—that their second death can't touch these believers—but that there is victory. There is not only victory, but there is reward. So that's what we want to see today. The reality of suffering is real. It's real today. It was real then. There is a nature to this suffering that we want to look at this morning. But there is a promise to the faithful. Main idea, it's in your notes at the top. The Lord attends His church in Smyrna. He sees their suffering and persecution and encourages them to persevere to the end and they will receive eternal life. First, the reality. Look at verse 9. It says, I know your tribulation and your poverty... It says, skip that, but you are rich. We'll come back to that. It says, I know your tribulation and your poverty and the slander of those who say they are Jews but are not. First, we see tribulation. See, affliction. It's the word we get. It's called philipsis in the Greek. It means pressure. They are under pressure. This kind of pressure, this kind of tribulation can come from any manner of directions oftentimes many at once, from work, from simply worry, from the circumstances, from opposition, persecution. It is under such pressure that people mentally or physically just collapse. This is the fear here. This pressure, this tribulation marks the last days. By the way, the last days began when Jesus came. Not waiting on the last days. We are in the last days. So were they. Marks the last days. Turn with me over to Revelation 13. You'll see that what they are going through was not simply something that people are waiting to happen. It was already happening then. And it will continue to happen. In Revelation 13, we see that there are the two groups of people. One who go along with the beast and one who don't. And those who don't aren't allowed to buy and sell. Let me read it. Revelation 13, 16. Also it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead. Verse 17. So that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark that is the name of the beast or the number of its name. Everybody gets all panicky every time the government does something maybe they're going to shoot something under our skin maybe we got that shot and it really put something in there listen brothers and sisters when you are redeemed you are marked with the spirit of God and all the devil does is try to counterfeit that you are marked you better believe you are marked and so are they we are Christians we run our business like Christians we, we guard our homes like Christians we go to the store like Christians we go to the gas station like Christians and everywhere they went They went as a Christian and they were marked. And because they were marked, they were experiencing pressure. And that pressure produced poverty. Poverty. I know your tribulation and your poverty. This city was wealthy, but believers were so poor, they were poor to the point of destitution. They were were almost homeless. They were, in other words, on the lowest end of the social scale of that society. Why? Well that's what we said. If they had a business, they ran their business like who? Like Christians. In other words, the problem was Jews and Romans wouldn't trade with them. If you went to get a job and they knew you were a follower of Christ, they wouldn't hire you. So you couldn't find employment. People would shun your business because of who you were. Matter of fact, listen to Hebrews. Ten says this, verse 34. Hebrews 10, 34. For you had compassion on those in prison and joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that yourself had a better possession and an abiding one. It just wasn't happening, in other words, that you were suffering because of Christians, because they were in Smyrna. They were suffering all the time because we're Christians. They were. In other words, following Christ has oftentimes produced physical poverty simply because people are following Christ. This begs the question, doesn't it? What does following Christ cost you? What does it cost you physically, mentally, emotionally, relationally? The truth is, following Christ always has a cost. And it did to them. It was producing physical poverty in their life. And this poverty was coming from many directions. one of those directions was the slander of the Jews. Verse 9. I know your tribulation and your poverty. And the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Now, if you've got a translation that says blasphemy, that's not the best word to describe that. In, in context, it, is, it means slander. They were speaking things against Christians. This is ironic, really, from our perspective, knowing history. You've all seen the pictures, haven't you? Right before the Holocaust began. What were the Germans doing to the Jewish people? Remember? Remember how they marked their businesses? Then they marked them. Remember how the Jewish people got blamed for everything? Some of it didn't make sense. It didn't matter. They depersonalized them. That's all, by the way, that is historically what happens before genocide happens. It's why they kill babies with no thought. You just depersonalize them. It's oftentimes easy to slaughter somebody when you don't know their name. They biblically marked them. They blamed them. They marked them. They isolated them. And eventually they slaughtered them. Ironically, the Jews were doing this to the believers in that day. They were slandering them. Mention the guy Polycarp. We'll talk about him several times. It's a pastor, right pastor there. In the second century. Polycarp refused to renounce his Christian faith. In other words, he refused to swear allegiance to Caesar. And and people made up of both pagans and Jews got together. Here's what they said. It's very telling. This is the teacher of Asia, the father of the Christians, the destroyer of the gods, who teaches many neither to offer sacrifices nor to worship. That truth, we talked about that this morning. The the devil always couches lies in the context of truth. John 8 44 says this Jesus said, You are the father, you are of your father, the devil. He usually says this to religious people, by the way. And your will is to do your father's desire. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character. He is a liar, and the father of lies. They were being slandered against. How were they responding, and how should we respond? Well, the Bible tells us that, that there again, the preeminence of Christ comes into bear. 1 Peter 2.23 says this, when Jesus was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Revelation is about a book that says exactly what Peter was looking forward to his coming. A time when the Lord will judge justly. But why? Look at this. Look back at verse 9 again. Oh. Why is he saying, they say they are Jews... But they're not. Not only are they not Jews, they're a synagogue, a dwelling place of Satan. Wow. Now remember, John's a Jew, (laughs) he's writing this. Jesus took on flesh, a human nature, and what people group was he born into? So why were they saying it? Why are these ethnic Jews not Jews? And listen, the Bible is explicit in why this is true. So let's look at Romans two. Romans two, twenty eight. You need to see this, this is important. Romans two verse twenty eight. When the Bible is explicit, so should we be. Romans 2 verse 28. For no one is a Jew who is, a, is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. Verse 29. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is is not from man, but from God. This is an issue of the heart. This is now an issue of the Spirit of God inside people. Not something outwardly, not merely something ethnically. Philippians 3.3 says it this way, For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God, and glory in Christ Jesus, and put no confidence in the flesh. He said, who are the circumcision? That's the question. You see it in Philippians 3. Who's the circumcision? The circumcision are those who worship by the Spirit of God, and glory in Jesus Christ, and no one else. When Christ came, brothers and sisters, all people, Jew and Gentile, slave and free, must come by way of the cross, or they are not the people of God. This is not replacement theology. This is the fulfillment of what was promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We are the people of God. Those who come by way of Christ and no one else. Not only that. He he says clear that the Jewish gatherings, Christ is not there. They have rejected Him. Not only that. But remember, Christ is in the midst of the church, but where else is the Spirit of God? It's in us. The the Jewish people, in all their religion, had become not simply not the dwelling place of God, but had become the dwelling place of Satan. This is serious. This brought the reality of suffering into the lives of believers. What's the nature of that suffering? Let's look at verse 10. The nature of suffering. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. What's the nature of this suffering? Some of these are obvious, but are important to point out. First, because the church is made up of individuals. We are the church, and yet Jason's living a life, Christina's living a life, Carolyn's living, we're all living a life, we're going through different things in this life because of who we are in Christ. So, in other words, it's personally costly. It's the nature of suffering. If you're not suffering, just hold on, give yourself a week, it's coming. It was prison for them. It was poverty. Death was around the corner. We'll see that next week. It's already happening to some of them. They could not pay their bills. They didn't know where their meal was coming from. This is personal, you see, as a parent. When you can't feed your children. Death was immediate. The cycle had already begun. They were already being persecuted and isolated and slandered. Not only that, it's often demonic. Now, there's a lot of places we can go. We could go to James and put tension in this. But we're going to go here with a small group. But let's think about it. You know the story of Job. You remember the conversation when the devil presented himself to God and God brings up Job. Anybody like him? And what did the devil say? <laughs> He only serves you because you give Him all that stuff. He only serves you because you put a protection around Him and you won't let me mess with Him. You let me mess with Him and He'll deny you to your face. That's what's going on here. The question, is your faith genuine? Will they really trust God? Or do they only trust Him because life is easy? Turn with me to 1 Peter 1. 1 Peter 1. See, the devil seeks to destroy, but God seeks to refine. 1 Peter 1, verse 6. In this you rejoice, though for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes through it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's this, it's real, it's painful, it's personal, it's it's even demonic. But the one who is the first and the last is not out of control. He is sovereign over the suffering of the church. So let's put this together. God's sovereignty and our suffering, their suffering. You see, it is divinely controlled. Go back up to verse 9. You can even see it here. He puts it in parentheses. I know your tribulation and your poverty. Look at the parentheses. But you are rich. This is how we know he is in control. That despite, he is reminding, despite that you are physically poor, you are spiritually rich. Psalms 4 verse 7 says this. You have put more joy in my heart than they that have when their grain and their wine abound. More joy in my heart than they have when they're grain, and more joy than those that are wealthy is those that are right before their God. It goes on to say in verse eight, "In peace I will both lie down and sleep, for you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety." How are you sleeping? How are you sleeping? Put more joy. You see, that's richness. People with all that stuff, you see. And you know this is true because it happens to us. It sneaks into our life. We lose sleep. We lose our peace because we're trying to manage all our stuff. <laughs> they were like, we don't have no stuff. They took all our stuff. They didn't take our peace. James 2, 5. Listen, my beloved brothers. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? I like what James says because he tells us what it means to be spiritually rich. Those who are rich in faith and those who are heir to the kingdom. That's hope, you see. It's biblical hope. But Here's the truth. He's in control and we know it. Look at the text. Look at verse 10. Because he knows what's about to happen. And he's not going to stop it. God knows. Do not fear, verse 10, what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison. In other words, he knows it's coming. And he's not stopping it. He's in control. He's doing something. But listen, I want to be clear. This is in here. Every single week, you have to try to ignore it. There is no promise of escape, only a call to endure. Isn't this what it's saying? Can we interpret it any other way? And these people are suffering, and they're suffering. Listen, this is what he's promising them. It's going to get worse. We could say today, he who has an ear, let him hear. It's going to get worse. Where is your hope? And where is your trust? There's no promise of escape. Suffering will get you. It is coming to you in your life as it is in these believers' life. And it gets worse oftentimes when you follow Christ. It is painful. But look at the end of verse 10. It's limited. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Now, this is revelation language. Does that mean that when someone gets in, goes to prison that they can count on, they're going to be in prison for exactly ten days? Not nine days, not eleven days, ten days. He says so. Is that what that means? It's not what it means. Ten days is a symbolic number. It means it's short. It means that he's in control of how long the suffering is. It's temporary. You can refer back to Job. Yes, you can do this, but no, you can't do that. Who's controlling what Satan has the ability, the range to do? God is. And it's just as true in your life as it is in the believers in Smyrna's life. God is in control. The suffering of the church is a present Reality, but our sovereign Lord is in control, working both faith and biblical hope. And listen, as he gives us the promise to the faithful, the promise to the faithful. Look at verse 10. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. There's a twofold command here do not fear, but be faithful. We could say this in the Christian Language of what it means to live and, and to be like Christ is that Christ gives us things that we must put off and things that we must put on as believers. What he is telling us to put off is fear. There are a lot of places I could go here, but I just want you to focus in with me here that this is an inevitable result, suffering, of being identified With the crucified one. You're being, I'm being, identified with one that the world crucified. He's saying, don't fear. They are identifying you with me. Turn with me to John 15. John 15. This wonderful, famous chapter. Look at verse 20. I want you to see, there should be in your life a joy of being connected or being identified with Christ. John 15, verse 20. Remember the word that I said to you, A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will what? Also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours, verse 21. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. Suffering is as much a promise in your life as heaven. Especially... When you begin to follow Christ and live like Christ, you are marked with Christ. You are identified with Christ. They connect you with Christ and they will not applaud you because of it. That is the consistent testimony of not only God's word, but of history. Don't be afraid to be marked as a believer and treated like your Lord, but be faithful. Now, don't you wish that the Smyrna believers would have been here at this, at this promise and say, I'm going to pull all of that suffering off of you, and I'm going to... He's not telling them that. There's no correction here. They probably wished he would have. You know, like, hey, Mike, stop doing that, right? That one's easy. But who wants to tell Mike, Mike, your life's going to get really hard over the next... Two years. That's what they're hearing. The call is to this. Don't be afraid, but be faithful. Listen to what he puts on the verse 10. Unto death. Let's go back to Polycarp. Pastor. Most likely, Polycarp. He died at 86. Was most likely a part of the church. Most people think he was a part of the church when John delivered his letter. The young man then. He would have at least, no matter the case, he would have been very, very, very familiar with what John wrote in Revelation. We know this both because of what the other church father named Ignatius and he wrote, that these warnings that was coming to him wasn't idle, that they actually came to fruition. Because in February the 2nd of A.D. 156, and this book was written probably around 95, A.D. 156, Polycarp, who was a bishop or a pastor at the time, they came to him. The mob came to take him away, to arrest him. And he did not run. What did Polycarp do? Do you know? He invited him into his house, he fed his captors, and then he asked him to let him pray for two hours, which they did. He then began, began his journey back to the city to be tried and his captors pleaded with him just sacrifice to the emperor who cares whether you believe it or not what's well, the big deal polycarp just throw it into the fire and say something and go about your life go back to your church and pastor what good's are going to do if you do that and then you die who's going to pastor your church polycarp he refused when he gets back to the city, the proconsul begins to encourage him. Swear allegiance to Caesar or else? Polycarp's famous response. For 86 years I have served him, and he has never done me wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? At that point, they threatened him. We'll throw you to the wild beasts. Polycarp calmly said, well, call him. They marched him off to the stake to be burned. He asked them, Please don't tie me. I'll stand here. They did. And both Romans and Jews gathered the wood to put around Polycarp. And as they did, this was his prayer O Lord Almighty. The Father of our beloved Son, Jesus Christ, through whom we have come to know you. I thank you for counting me worthy this day and this hour of sharing the cup of Christ among the number of your martyrs. At that, the fire was lit. The wind was blowing that day and blew the wind away from Polycarp, which made his pain more excruciating. His life was eventually ended by a soldier with a sword. Give you a context for the passage now. Do not fear, but be faithful unto death. Polycarp understood that whatever Christ, following Christ, cost you, it is worth it. And it is worth it because of the promise. Look at it, it's connected. Don't fear, be faithful, and I will give you the crown of life. The crown of life is eternal life. The cross of Christ actually provides something for us. That which no one can take away. Eternal life is not just a ticket to heaven. It is the ability to know God now and forever. That is eternal life. Eternal life is to know you and the only God whom you sent. The figure here of a crown is not kingly. The figure here of a crown is athletic. It is about those who participate in the game and win and are given a wreath. Listen to Paul, 1 Corinthians nine twenty five. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we, an imperishable. This is the crown of life. That which can't be taken away. That which is eternal. That which is ours now. This comes with a second promise. You see it in verse 11. It says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. So this is the second promise that goes with the crown of life. Because you are giving eternal life, you will never experience the second death. This now moves from athletics to warfare. This is spiritual warfare language in verse 11. To the victors. Much of the rest of Revelation is a story about a spiritual warfare Of which our Lord wins. And we, brothers and sisters, are in him. He is the one who is alive, you see. It is his crown to give. He is the author of life. For he died and now he is alive. Remember verse 8? And that's what he's saying. I give you eternal life. Nobody can take it away from you. And because I give you life, you'll never taste the second death. The first death, you see, is when you physically die. But remember what the Lord says. To be absent from the body is to be what? Present with the Lord. Those who experience that will never experience eternal death. Our brothers and sisters who have gone on before us, many of your family members, if they are in Christ, they are in what we call the intermediate state. They are with God, enjoying God. They are with life in God. And they're in a chance that they will ever taste the second death because it is the Lord, the risen one, who gave them life to start with. And that's the case for you if you're in Christ. Jesus himself taught it, didn't he? Don't fear those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him who can both destroy the soul and the body in hell. He is the God of hell. And he is the one who offers life. 1 Corinthians 15.50. I want you to see this. This promise here is not just, I wish I had more time. We'll look at it again when we come back through. This is not only a promise of no second death. This is also a promise of a second resurrection. Let's look at it. 1 Corinthians 15.50. It's not in your notes. I added it. I just could not read it. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and the mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Therefore, you see that? Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast. Same message in Revelation is here. Be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of God, knowing in the Lord your labor is not in vain. And listen, we can add based off the Scripture today, neither is your suffering. Amen. So what today? Are you willing to live by faith and not fear no matter the cost. Are you willing to live by faith and not fear? No matter what it costs you. I cannot promise you that it's not, that it's not going to cost you. I can promise you that it will cost you. But you have heard the promises. Second Peter verse one, chapter 1 verse 5 says this. For this very reason. That is... Because the living Lord has given you all you need. For that reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self control, and self control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and with brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they what? What does it say? They what? Keep You need to underline that if you'd like to write in your Bibles. They keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Got another therefore in verse 10. Therefore, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these things, you will never fall. Look at the promise. It's the same message through the Bible when you read it. For this is... For this way you will richly be provided to you an interest in the eternal kingdom through our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. It says, make every effort. I can't change that word to mean anything other than urgency. Make every effort. You were saved by faith. And that faith was a gift. And here it says, add to your faith. That's what it says, supplement. Add to it. Build on it. Active imperative. We talked about this at Growth Group this week. In our Growth Group, I'm going to mention it again here because it's important. We do this through the spiritual disciplines and what we call the ordinary means of grace. Now, I'm going to get personal here for a minute because it's true. I do it because how personal the Lord gets in these letters. Gathering for weekly worship... And prioritizing biblical community is a means of God's grace you neglect at your own peril. You neglect it. You see, there are God-given means by which when we participate in it as believers, they are means of God's grace in our life. And we need that grace because of how hard life is. Are you with me with this? These things are not optional. They are gifts of God's grace. That's why we celebrate communion every week. Because it's not simply worship. It is a means of grace for believer's life to stop to remember the fact that He is our Lord and we are a family. And nothing will ever change that. That is a grace in a believer's life. And we cannot live without it. Cannot live without it. We must not. God is calling us to repentance today because we are neglecting the things that are the very means of grace by which He provides for you, that which you must have in your life to bring glory in, in your life and joy. If you neglect communion, if you neglect prayer, if you neglect spiritual disciplines, we are neglecting the means of God's grace whereby we persevere and even grow in times of suffering. It's the way it works, brothers and sisters. I cannot promise you. You know not suffer. I've, we've been with each other, a lot of us, a long time. And I've watched you suffer. And you've watched me suffer. And we're not done yet. He's calling us not to fear, but to courage. The opposite of fear is not courage. The opposite of fear is faith. The opposite of fear is faith. Faith and fear are opposites. They are against each other. When fear is ruling in my life, and oftentimes it does, faith is not. Faith banishes fear. Psalms 56 3. When I am afraid, I put my trust in you, in God, whose word I praise, in God I trust. I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? You see, what banishes this, what's going to happen to me next is that my God will supply all of my needs according to His riches and glory. I have all that I need because I have Him. It took the church in Smyrna where they needed to be and it's a promise to you as well. Faith brings faithfulness and faithfulness pursues God Grace at any cost, because when they pursue God's grace, they pursue Him. and he's worth it. Moses, Hebrews 11:24 says this, "By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. For he was looking to the reward. Brothers and sisters, the Lord is calling us to join the faithful. No matter what it costs you. Because Jesus is the living one. He is the first. He is the last. He is the one that's promised us victory. But he does not promise us that it was going to be easy. So let us not forsake, brothers and sisters, that which God has given us because of his great love for us. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your honesty. Oh God, how we need that in this life. Just somebody who loves us enough to be honest with us. And thank you that you are that one who sticks closer to us than any family member. You proved your love by the suffering of your son for us. And so Lord now we come to this time where we both offer our worship and receive your grace. Where we Offer our worship and remember that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, because of the work of your Son alone. We rest in that together. Lord, we rest in that. But we long for that day. We won't have to go to any more funerals, we won't have to take any more medicine. We won't wake up hurting and see those that we love hurting, Lord. We long for that day, but more importantly, we long for the day when we will see your son's face. And the reality of our adoption into your family will become face-to-face around the table. Until then, Lord, Fill us with your Spirit, Lord, so that we might be faithful to the end. And this we know, because the Spirit of God lives within us, we will be faithful. And so now, Lord, let us be faithful in our worship. Not only now, but as we go. In Jesus' name, amen.